Our God is unequaled. He's unchanging. He's unfailing. There's nothing like him. No one else like him. In fact, the evidence of our creator is everywhere. It's all around us. For those, I think, who are willing to see it for what it is, it becomes undeniable that there is, in fact, a God from the mountains that tower into the skies to the fathomless depths of the great oceans and all that they contain, from the rhythms of nature working in harmony to sustain life on this planet, to the intricacies of the human body, the grandeur and wonder of God is undeniably evident everywhere we turn. The fingerprint of a creator is all over the natural world, and it is there to testify to all of mankind to prove that there is indeed a God who is supreme, divine, and sovereign over all, one who actually transcends the natural world that he created. In Romans 1, 18 through 22, the Apostle Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. And I'd say that is just as accurate a description of many people today as it was then. And yet we have available to us throughout the world all of this evidence to support our truth claims about the one true God. And so in the interest of using that evidence to convince unbelievers that there is in fact a God, that all of this order and meaning in the natural world didn't occur by some random purposeless accident. Rather, it was intended, calculated, and deliberately created by an intelligent and all-powerful being. Believers have therefore, over the, the past couple of centuries at least, developed these convincing arguments to that end. Because we want others to recognize and acknowledge that God exists with the hope that once we accomplish that, once we are able to persuade an unbeliever that there is in fact a God, then maybe from there we can lead them to faith in Jesus Christ, the very embodiment of that one true God. And so we learn and sometimes even rehearse and practice these arguments concerning the evidence of a creator which is actually a religious discipline called apologetics. And there are some very famous apologists who are quite skilled in making apologetic arguments. Uh, people like Os Guinness and William Lane Craig and Ravi Zacharias, and there are many others who are masters of the theological science that is apologetics. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the men and women who practice and teach apologetics so skillfully. They are gifts to the body of Christ However, when we use apologetics as our first approach to unbelievers, I think we sometimes run the risk of winning arguments for Christ rather than winning hearts for Christ. And the problem with that is we're not called to just win arguments for him. We're called to win hearts for him. And uh, by the way, I think many of those great apologists in modern Christianity would agree with that statement. So although there is certainly a place for apologetics in evangelism, I don't think it is always the best approach as a first approach because I think it can be much more effective before we try and prove to someone that God exists to first show them what God is like. So just as the existence of God is on display in creation, the character of God is on display in his people. At least it should be. And I'm convinced that in most cases, it is far more powerful for someone to experience the character of God in us first, even though they may not have any idea what they're actually experiencing, other than the fact that it is undeniably something very different and very powerful and very attractive as they interact with believers. And then once they experience his character, his nature, really his spirit in us, they will either be repelled by it or attracted to it which is where apologetics 
comes in. Because when an unbeliever has a meaningful encounter with a true believer, very often they will question why we are the way that we are in one form or another. And the moment you tell them it is because of the Spirit of Christ living inside of you that you are the way that you are, people will often ask questions to the effect of or make comments like, well, I'm, I'm not sure I believe in a God or I just can't buy the claims of the Bible or, you know, religion is fine for some, but not for me. And on and on it goes, which is precisely where apologetics can become so effective for those uh, who believe that Christianity cannot be intelligently argued from a, a scientific or historical or logical perspective. And what will more often than not open the door for even having those kinds of conversations with people who are willing to listen is the fact that they've just encountered the Spirit of God in us, even though they may not realize it. But that's what happens when we are submitted to the Holy Spirit within us. His character shines through us. It is palpable when you truly experience the character of God in other people, which is why it is so critical that we learn to deny ourselves and instead allow the character of God, the nature of God, which is so often counter to our own nature to shine through us before others, for that is what captures the hearts and minds and imaginations of people. It's not really clever arguments, but real people who exude the real character of God in their everyday lives. Why? Because that happens to be quite uncommon, okay? We may be able to argue people under the table with our reasoned explanations and evidences of what we believe, but what good does it possibly serve other than to stroke our egos to win arguments against people if they never experience the character of Christ in us? All you have to do is turn on social media and you will instantly get a face full of professing believers who are bent on winning arguments without any evidence whatsoever of even a shred of concern for the souls of those with whom they are arguing. And if there's ever a time when it is crucially important for Christians to radiate the character of Christ, that time is now as our culture seems to be more divided than ever. Okay? People need to see Christ in us far more than they need to hear better arguments. And again, there is a place for reasoning and explaining and defending the faith. The Bible is very clear on that. I'm simply saying that before we give people arguments as evidence of what we believe, let's let them experience the evidence of what we believe by allowing the true character of Christ to shine through us. Then our arguments will go much farther when they're backed up by the way that we live and love and interact with other people. And in our, our story today, as we continue working our way through the book of Esther, we find the character of God at work in the lives of and on behalf of his people. And they, they also are confronted, as we'll see, by a sharply divided culture. And their response to God's working in their lives is probably very different from what we would condone today because all of this occurred before the covenant was fulfilled in Christ and so it was a different time and dispensation for God's people but his character which is revealed in the story is the same because God never changes as the video said he's unchanging and so let's pick up the story where we left off last week and we'll see what we can learn today about the character of God and just a bit of backstory for anyone who may not have been here last week. Haman, the king of Persia's number one official, was plotting to have Mordecai, who was Esther's adopted father and a lesser official in the royal court, killed for refusing to bow before him. But just before he was to be executed, in a stunning turn of events, God intervened and Mordecai was not only spared, but he was actually honored by the king, who was reminded that Mordecai had foiled an assassination plot against the king some five years earlier. However, Still very much in effect was this royal decree devised by Haman and signed by the king, also stemming from Mordecai's stand against Haman, for all of the Jews to be completely annihilated, which still technically included Mordecai because he was a Jew. So Haman's ultimate wish for Mordecai and all of his people to be wiped off of the face of the earth was still on schedule. He would just have to wait a little longer than planned to see Mordecai's end come. Meanwhile, even as Haman was plotting against Mordecai and the Jews, 
Esther and Mordecai had their own little plot going on to convince the king to somehow reverse the fortunes of the Jewish people so they might live, which was an incredibly delicate position for Esther to be in because of the perfect storm of conditions involving, uh, first of all, Persian law, which said that all decrees of the king were irrevocable. Secondly, because of the recent closeness of Haman to the king and the recent distance of Esther to the king who hadn't seen him for a month by, by his choice, which was most likely a signal that his feelings for her had probably begun to cool off a bit. And then finally, because of the king's own disposition and behavior, which was erratic at best and psychotic when at his worst. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So as we pick up the story... Esther is now hosting her second royal feast for the king and Haman in as many days, very deliberately taking time to reestablish a good rapport with the king before presenting her request, which the king has repeatedly asked for already and is about to ask for again. So let's read it together. Esther chapter 7, we'll begin with the first six verses. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther, And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I bet he was. So the king asks Esther a third time, What is it you want from me? And Esther then, after two days of feasting and drinking with the king, finally introduces her incredibly delicate and dangerous request for the king to turn against his closest advisor and confidant, Haman. But it's not just that she uh, had to effectively accuse Haman. She also has to do it without incriminating the king, knowing that he was not only complicit in condemning the Jews to certain death, albeit unwittingly, but he was also the one who authorized and signed and sent out the royal decree to carry out the genocide against them. It is truly hard to overstate the complexity and precarity of Esther's position here because in truth, the king was just as guilty as Haman. And if Esther is not careful, she could very well bring the king's wrath down upon herself as his propensity to deal harshly with people, even those very close to him, was well, well documented. We know, of course, about the first queen, Vashti. If you were here, he banished her from the royal court forever, effectively divorced her for refusing to come and perform for him and his drunken guests at a party. And then the 4th century B.C. historian Herodotus records this event involving a very wealthy man named Pythias of Lydia. He was a descendant of the Lydian royalty before the Persian conquest. And he contributed lavishly to King Ahasuerus toward the cost of the coming war with Greece. He also entertained the king very graciously on his way to the war as well. In fact, The king was so pleased with Pythias that he, in return, gave him 7,000 gold derricks. They were Persian coins back to him. So by all accounts, a great relationship between these two men. And so as the Persian army was marching off to war with Greece, Pythias asks his friend King Ahasuerus to release Pythias' eldest son from the obligation of military service so that he could stay back and care for Pythias, his father, in his old age, sending the rest of his sons off to war. And the king, being incensed by Pythias' request, agreed to release the oldest son from the military. So the king has Pythias' son brought to him. He cuts him into two pieces. It lays one half of his body on the left side of the road, the other half of his body on the right side of the road, and then makes his entire army march down the road in between the body, just in case anyone else was considering staying behind. What a way to treat your friends. 
King Ahasuerus was completely unstable and unpredictable, even toward those closest to him. And if anyone knew that well, it would have been Queen Esther, who is now asking the king to reconsider his own edict to wipe out all of the Jews and implicate his closest advisor in the process, while at the same time, after five years of marriage, she reveals herself as a Jew, which she has kept hidden from her husband, the king. And on top of all of that, if the king's edict is not carried out according to what Esther is asking, then the 10,000 talents of silver, which was almost a year's income for the kingdom that Haman promised back in chapter 3 to, the, to deliver to the king's treasury after looting and killing the Jews, would now not be given as well. And of course, Esther knows all of that. So once again, she very tactfully and brilliantly really says to the king, if I've found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request, for we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we've been sold more uh, merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So after quoting the royal edict concerning her people verbatim, she acknowledges the fact that the king is going to lose a lot of money if he agrees to not go forward with the plan to have them all killed. But as Ian Duguid puts it, there was no constitutional right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Persian Empire. So Esther's very careful to word her request in such a way as to acknowledge the king's interest even beyond her own. And so in a very skillful and yet enigmatic way, Esther baits the hook and then waits to see if the king will bite. And of course he does with a response that is eerily similar to King David's response to the prophet Nathan, who much in the same way baited the hook for David after his own sin with Bathsheba. And so King Ahasuerus in a furious rage asks Esther, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And yet unlike Nathan, Esther does not implicate the king in her answer. She deftly says, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. And in that one statement, all becomes clear. Haman realizes for the first time that his plan to kill all of the Jews includes the queen. The king understands for the first time that the royal decree that he agreed to and authorized and signed and sent out to kill Haman's enemies was actually for the Jews, including his own wife and Mordecai, whom he just honored for saving the king's life. What a moment that must have been. What would the king do? What could the king do? His wife has accused his closest advisor of plotting her own death and that of all her people. And yet he knows good and well that he is guilty. He's just as guilty as Haman in that plot. So what to do? How can he possibly punish Haman without implicating himself? And even if he finds a way to stop Haman, how can he stop the royal edict, which was irrevocable according to his own law? Esther has just put the king in an extremely difficult position. Haman is terrified for his own life, and all of the Jews, including Mordecai and Esther, are still under an imminent death sentence. The entire situation has just gone off like a grenade in the room, which is why the king responds the way that he does. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So the king storms out of the room because he has no idea how to deal with the situation without implicating himself, and yet he's furious with Haman and clearly wants to punish him. So he storms out of the room. I gotta go figure out what to do. He heads out into the palace garden to think through his options, and when he returns, he finds that Haman has conveniently solved the king's problem for him. Let's read verse 8 to the end of the chapter. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. 
And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Amazing. So in the span of just a few moments, from the time that Esther reveals her request to the king, justice was served to Haman in an unlikely turn of events, to to say the least. The king needed a way to punish him and to really shut him up for good so that he could not turn around and implicate the king in the plot to kill the Jews, with the king, which the king himself approved, again, albeit unwittingly. And so Haman also unwittingly provides the perfect excuse for the king to have him executed. In the Persian Empire, harem protocol dictated that no one but the king could ever be alone with one of the women from the harem. So first of all, Haman should have left the room when the king left the room. But in his exasperation and fear, he stays there to plead for his own life from Queen Esther. And then he throws himself down on the couch that Esther was sitting on, bowing before her to beg for his life, which was the last nail in his coffin, because the law also said that even in the company of others, no man could approach a woman of the king's harem within seven steps. And so for Haman to fall on the very couch that the queen was sitting on was unthinkable in Persian law. And of course, the moment the king saw it, he knew immediately that his problem had just been solved. And so he declares in a way that everyone within earshot might hear him. Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Which was all that his servants needed to hear as they rush in and cover Haman's head and lead him to the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. The king knew well and good that he wasn't assaulting the queen. Just provided a perfect excuse to have him killed. And interestingly, there are uh, amplified translations of many of the Old Testament Bible stories. They're called Targums. And they were shared by first century A.D. rabbis as the, the common language was shifting, transitioning from Hebrew to Aramaic. And so the Hebrew scriptures would be read in Hebrew by the rabbi and then uh, expounded on by the same rabbi in Aramaic. And so although not biblical scripture, it's still very interesting to read some of those targums or expanded versions of these stories. And in one of the Aramaic targums of Esther, it says that the king actually gave Mordecai the privilege of personally killing Haman on the gallows. And there's an interesting exchange between them while they're standing there at the gallows, which we won't take time to read today. But the point is, whoever led Haman to his death, this was poetic justice, to say the least. Haman, who had built the gallows to kill a Jew who refused to bow before him, was now being killed on those same gallows for, do, for daring to bow before a Jew who just happened to be the queen. And as we'll see in a moment, Mordecai even ends up acquiring all of Haman's position and property. You, you couldn't make this stuff up. You couldn't make it up if you tried. In fact, not even Esther and Mordecai could have planned or predicted Haman's end to come the way that it did, which tells us really more about God than it does about anyone else in the story because God's justice for his people rests in his character, not ours. As mentioned last week, although we certainly have a part to play in God's plan for our lives, ultimately, he not only supplies all that is needed for his will to be accomplished in us, but even the merit for all that he provides is found in him, not in us. In other words, God is just not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Justice is a part of his character, and he exercises that justice on behalf of his people, not because we've earned it or could ever be good enough on our own to deserve it, but because of who he is, a just and loving and forgiving God. And yet, because he is just, justice must be done. Our sin had to be paid for, and so he sent his perfect and sinless son, Jesus Christ, to die for us in our place so that through the ultimate injustice, Justice was served. There isn't a human soul that ever has been or ever will be who could do what Jesus did because none of us is just or justified without him. So this just end for Haman was not engineered by human effort and it wasn't granted because of human merit. It was rather the prerogative of a just God. The king wasn't just, right? As we've seen, 
He was anything but just in his dealings with people throughout his reign, including the first queen and some of his closest friends. It had nothing to do with the Jews being just. The whole reason they were in exile was because of their own sin. And it wasn't because Esther was just that justice was served on behalf of her people. I I think though, when we read this story, we tend to uh, lift Esther up on a pedestal. And yet, although she admittedly had many wonderful qualities, Queen Esther was far from perfect, okay? For her to hide the fact that she was a Jew from everyone, including the king, for five years with all of the royal feasts and dinners and official meetings and on and on, there is no way that Esther was able to keep all of the dietary restrictions and requirements involving prayer and worship imposed on the Jews under the Old Covenant ceremonial laws. She willingly courted and married a pagan king. Not that she may have had a choice, but she certainly didn't resist. She conveniently overlooks the king's own complicity in the plot to kill her and the rest of the Jews. And even here, as Haman is accused of assaulting the queen, she does nothing to speak honestly about the fact that Haman was clearly not assaulting her. He was merely begging for his own life. Okay? I love the story and her character as much as anyone. But her character cannot be compared to God's character. Because if we read this with honesty... Esther was obviously not a model Jew and far from perfect. So it wasn't because Esther was just that justice was served. No, God's justice for his people rests in his character alone, not ours. And yet we're supposed to model that character in ours. So then why do we feel sometimes we're justified in withholding forgiveness from someone who may not deserve it? when a just God has forgiven us even though we didn't deserve it. In Colossians 3, 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. In other words, because God's character is to offer us forgiveness even though we don't deserve it, we are also to offer forgiveness to others who don't deserve it. God's justice was ultimately expressed through the cross. His justice was satisfied in the crucifixion of Christ, which means that his justice was satisfied by us not getting what we deserved. And so because he forgave us, even though we didn't deserve it, he requires us to forgive others even when they don't deserve it. And that may uh, not seem just to us. But justice originates in his character, not ours. And it is satisfied in what Christ did, not in what we do or don't do. Again, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 through 26, and the word justified there is the Greek word dikaio, which means to be rendered innocent or righteous. So all who are justified, made righteous, are justified because he is just, because he is righteous. It all comes from him, because we're not righteous without him, which means we have no right to withhold from others that which he did not withhold from us. And yet so much of our behavior at times that we think is just, when we withhold that, when we hold on to our feelings, our bitter feelings toward other people, when we refuse to forgive and we think that's just because they don't deserve it, it's really nothing more than pride, jealousy, bitterness, all dressed up in self-righteousness. We cannot hold back forgiveness when we've been hurt or offended. We, we cannot carry those offenses around with us as if by our own merit we're somehow justified in withholding forgiveness. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a club that every single one of us is a member of. No exceptions, no exemptions, no special cases. Every single one of us 
who is justified by faith in Christ is so justified only because of Christ, which means we are required to reflect his character by offering to others what he offers to us. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to stop withholding compassionate hearts toward others. Even when they don't deserve it, we cannot withhold kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Right? Listen, God will see to it that justice is done on our behalf. Our job is to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven us, so we also must forgive, he says. Because again, we can, we can win arguments all day long. But no matter how convincing or impenetrable our arguments may seem, if we do not have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, if we don't radiate the character of Christ in our own lives, our best arguments will fall on deaf ears. God is just. And therefore, he is our justifier, which means we cannot withhold from others what he did not withhold from us. Now, let's keep reading because the story is far from over. Haman has been justly dealt with, yet lest we forget, the royal edict for the annihilation of the Jews is still in effect, all right? Chapter 8, we'll start with verses 1 through 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that had been devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king, and if I've found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the providences of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. In other words, the king says, I cannot revoke the earlier edict that calls for the death of the Jews because an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. However, what you can do is write another edict in response to the first as you please and that edict will carry the same weight and authority as the first. And this second decree is actually far more than a last-ditch effort to avoid certain death. It is, in fact, the fulfillment of the promise of God to deliver the Jews from their enemies, okay? As well as this plan by Mordecai and Esther seems to be going. What's happening here is ultimately not the result of the faithfulness of Mordecai and Esther. It is a result of the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. God's faithfulness toward his people rests in his character, not in ours. As mentioned earlier, Esther was not always faithful to God's covenant, but God is always faithful to his covenant. God always keeps his promises, even though we don't. Just as Paul reminded Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. Back in Genesis 12, God declared that those who bless Abraham and his offspring will be blessed, while those who curse them will be cursed. Haman wasn't just taking on the Jews. He was taking on their God. And the consequences that are about to follow for all of those in Persia who will soon attack the Jews are a result of offending the king of kings far more than they are of offending King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. The punishing judgment that will be brought to bear on the heads of the enemies of the Jewish people, which will ultimately bring about the Jews' deliverance, is because of the faithfulness of God in keeping his promise to them from all the way back to Genesis 12 to Abraham. <clears throat> and this second decree 
signed, sealed, and delivered by the king is the assurance that God is about to make good on that promise in epic fashion, by the way. And here's the beautiful truth about this character trait of God concerning, concerning us today. He doesn't change. He keeps his promises today just as he did then. And the keeping of those promises is fixed in his character, not in ours. If God's faithfulness depended upon our faithfulness, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. But thankfully, that is decidedly not the case. Just as a decree from the king of Persia was irrevocable, Paul says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine. God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. And so if we are to reflect his character in ours, we too must be faithful. And listen, the question that we really, really need to answer here is faithful to what? What are we commanded to be faithful to? The answer is, we're to be faithful to God and to each other, which seems like it would be an obvious answer, except for the fact that the church has been struggling with this from the first century all the way up to this century. Just listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church, which could just as easily be written to a church in America today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers." What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now listen, I understand political passion. But I wasn't baptized in the name of Donald Trump. I wasn't baptized in the name of Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or Gary Johnson or any other human being that I see Christians pledging their allegiance to. Do we pray and support our leaders? Yes, of course we do. God's word is clear on that, but there is no president, no Congress, no Supreme Court. There is no government, king, or country that can save us. There is but one God, and his name is Jesus Christ, and it is to him and him alone that we owe our ultimate allegiance and worship and devotion. Furthermore, he is what unites us, not politics, not governments, not policies. I was driving down the road this week listening to a political uh, radio talk show and they were talking about a new book by this uh, famous conservative commentator and the book is titled In Trump We Trust, which of course was a play on our country's motto In God We Trust and I thought how fitting to describe the state of our culture today. And, and, and listen, it's not the title of a book that is the real problem. It may be a great book, I have no idea. It's that that kind of thinking is dividing not only our nation today, but it is dividing the church of Jesus Christ. And please understand, I am probably about as politically conservative as any human being on the planet. But the moment we put our faith and trust in anyone but Christ alone, that is the moment the church begins to be divided, just as Paul described in the first century church in Corinth. And yet we're called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of us agree and that there be no divisions among us. He's not talking about politics. But that we be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I'll tell you, that kind of unity can never happen when our focus is on a political leader or a government or any other human being or any other human institution. Now, that kind of unity that Paul commanded us to have for one another can only be found. It can only be found when we are all, every single one of us, fixated on Christ alone. 
We are to be faithful to him and to one another. And yet all I've seen for the past week are Christians ripping each other to shreds over everything that divides us rather than lifting one another up over everything that unites us. I'm telling you, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Besides the message we're sending to unbelievers who are watching the church seemingly implode on itself over politics. And again, please hear me. Uh, there are moral issues that have been politicized, like abortion. And I think the voice of the church should ring loud and clear in defense of those who cannot defend themselves, which is at the very core of the gospel. But true politics cannot be the focal point of the church if anyone is ever going to take us or our message seriously. Because the Republican message is not our message. The Democratic message is not our message, the libertarian message. It is not our message. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our message. Just as Paul said to that same Corinthian church later, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is the only thing that can unite us. We're called to be faithful to God and to teach other in this because that is also the character of God. And so we can argue with one another about politics from now until Jesus comes back and we can make all of the best arguments. But if we don't radiate the character of Christ first in all that we say and do, then our arguments are worthless. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 9 to the end of the chapter. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached there was gladness and joy among the Jews a feast and a holiday and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. That's fantastic. I'm a Jew. I'm with them. I'm over here. I'm with you. <laughs> so the royal secretaries are summoned, the same as they had been more than two months earlier by Haman. Mordecai gives them orders to write a decree to the satraps, the governors and officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language, just as Haman had done with the first decree, except that this decree included the Jews. That's significant because Mordecai was in effect putting the Jewish people on equal footing with the rulers and nobles by addressing the letter to them right along with the leaders in every province. And he makes it very clear that the Jews may take any and every measure necessary in order to defend themselves against all coming attacks born out of that first decree. And also, like Haman's edict, Mordecai's was to be issued as law in every province and made known to every people of every nationality so that all necessary preparations for that day could be made. 
In short, the Jews were given the exact same terms of force to defend themselves in this edict as that which was pronounced as an attack against them in the first edict. Civil war has just been authorized in Persia, which seems like a dreadful outcome to this entire saga. And for God's enemies, it would be, but not for the Jews. For God's people, this was a means of deliverance from death. In fact, this edict was a great act of love by God for his people. You can see it in the effect that it had on them immediately, even before the fighting begins. Are they cowering in fear? Are they nervous? Are they afraid of what's coming? Verse 15 says, The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. They knew who was on their side. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. They're getting ready to go into civil war and they're throwing a party, man. They know who's on their side. They are celebrating the fact that they have been miraculously given a way of deliverance from an otherwise irrevocable death sentence. There was still a responsibility on their part. They still had to respond to the new edict in order to benefit from it. They had to get ready. But now there was a way to life made possible that didn't previously exist. And it foreshadows the deliverance that he provided for his people through Jesus Christ. His great act of love for us when previously there was nothing but death. Yes, we still have a responsibility in that. But God's love for his people rests in his character, not in ours. Obviously, Mordecai and Esther love God's people. Just look at all that they've done to try and preserve them. And of course, when Esther approached the king about authorizing this second decree, verse 3 says she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he devised against the Jews. And then in verse 6, she says, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Clearly, Esther loved God's people, but it wasn't her love for them that saved them. It was God's love for them. In 1 John 4, 8, John tells us that God is love, which means whatever love there is in us, for him and for one another, it comes from him, which also means that our love for others cannot be based on what they can do for us or how much they need us or even how much they love us. No, our love for others is based on how much God loves us and them. Now think about that. If my love for other people is based on how they treat me or how much they agree with me or how well we happen to get along, then my love for others will always be conditional based on their performance or based on their character. But Jesus didn't say love your neighbor as he is able to earn your love. No, he said love your neighbor as yourself, Mark 12, 31. He didn't say love the people who love you back. No, he in fact said love your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. He didn't say love people as they deserve to be loved. No, he said love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 13, 34. And how exactly did he love us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. We didn't earn his love, and we do not deserve it, and yet he loved us to the point of giving up his own life for us. So why do we think we can withhold from others what he did not withhold from us? So what if they don't deserve it? So what if they don't deserve it? Neither do we. But he loves us just the same, which is exactly how we are to love other people. We, we talk about theology and doctrine, and those are very important, actually very important aspects of fulfilling the Great Commission. In fact, it is critical that we understand and relate sound biblical doctrine when we share the gospel. My wife and I have been talking about this all week. Paul told Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, Titus 2.1. He told Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Peter said, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
1 Peter 3.15. And of course, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There's a lot of doctrine included in all that he commanded us. So yes, we need theology. Yes, we need apologetics. Yes, we need sound doctrine. Yes, we need solid arguments in defense of the gospel. In fact, every believer should strive to be as intellectually astute and as versed as possible in the teachings of Scripture. But if all of that learning and all of those arguments and all of our efforts to convince are not preceded by the justice, faithfulness, and love of God and how we actually live our lives, if we do not radiate the character of Christ in our actions, then our words will mean very little to those who will even take the time or bother to listen. God is just. God is faithful. God is love. And so when we encounter uh, others do they see justice? Do they see faithfulness? Do they see love in us before we even open our mouths? Or is it all just talk? Clever arguments without any validation in how we actually conduct ourselves. I often see Christians winning arguments, but by the tone of their approach and the tenor of their purpose in making those arguments to begin with, I wonder how often are they actually winning people's hearts? I would much rather always show the justice, faithfulness, and love of Christ than to always win every argument. Esther wasn't always right. In fact, she was far from perfect, but she radiated the character of Christ in her life. His justice, his faithfulness, his love was evident in her, which is what drew others to her. That is exactly what will draw others to us, to the church, to Christ. Not winning arguments, winning hearts as we radiate the character of Christ in everything we do. Let's pray.